When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hello and welcome back to the show. Today's episode is with Blackboards Surfboards owner, shaper, laminator, sander, accountant, shop sweeper, salesman, and one-man marketing team, Tim Crozier. He's also the deputy at the Icons of Foam shaping comp at the boardroom show, so he's had unrivaled access to the world's most famous board builders, the likes of Dick Brewer, Rennie Yader, Simon Anderson, Ben Ipa. Wayne Lynch, Jerry Lopez, and those are just some of the honorees. In addition to that, there's six competitors that he works with every year at the boardroom show, formerly Sacred Craft. So it'd be safe to say that Tim's actually worked with more iconic board builders than probably anybody on the planet. His longest clients and team writers are in fact his two sons, both of whom have been dialing in through research and development a new shortboard model It's a rounded pin twin called the Hawkeye Hybrid. They are getting shacked on it in bigger surf, doing airs on it, flaring the fins, holding the line with big rail carves. And Tim had heard me talking about riding other twin fins, longer twins, mid-lengths, for the past couple of years. And um, so he reached out to suggest going shorter with a Hawkeye. So he built one to my specs, and that is what I've been riding exclusively for over a past month. It's a really interesting design. He and I will get deep into it. Um, but the short explanation is it's less than six feet. There's a lot of volume forward and then very little volume with a lot of contours on the back half. So real simple and full in the front and then real slight and a little bit more sophisticated and complex in the back, but a real modern combination of things. And what that allows is a lot of stability and paddle power, but ripability basically in the back. And so we're going to use this Hawkeye Hybrid as a giveaway for you, the listeners, this month. Actually, um, on September 1st, we're going to give it away. But the way that we operate this is that we have a support platform set up on surfsplendorpodcast.com for you, the listeners, to support our work. And then we do these surfboard giveaways periodically, pretty much every other month, just as a thank you both to you, our listeners, for the support, but also as a way to kind of highlight and promote some of these shapers that we're working with and getting boards from. So if you're already a supporter, fantastic. You are automatically entered uh, to win that board. 
And if you're not and you want to get in on it, you are totally welcome to and you have until um, the end of the month to do that. So we will pick the winner on September 1st. It's completely random. We just use an app, throw all the names into an app, and it randomly selects a winner. So it's $5 a month, but it really does go a long way. We have advertising revenue as well, which is great, but it's inconsistent and it fluctuates from month to month. So the bedrock of listener support is what allows us to really run the business on. So thank you for that. And there's also another little incentive, which is um, an advertising free podcast feed. So if you are a supporter, you can navigate over to the ad free podcast feed and you just copy and paste our URLs into your app and uh, there's an ad-free version there for you as well. So thanks for your consideration there. And without further ado, my name is David Scales for Surf Splendor, and here is my conversation with Tim Crozier of Blackbird Surf. I watched the profile video on your website. You make an excellent foam for the cappuccino. <laughs> Did you work as a barista at one point? No, man. You know what's super funny about that is when when I met uh, who is now my wife after 23 years, uh, I didn't even drink coffee. I, I did my entire time in the Navy without smoking cigarettes. And, and I, I've never smoked a cigarette. I smoke cigars, but I never drank coffee. And like, we worked 18 hour days. We slept for like five hours, 45 minutes. And I saw these guys, you know, just chain smoking, drinking coffee, chain smoke, drink coffee all day. And they just had guts and, you know, they were just kind of disgusting sailors. And um, I just, I just had a bad view of what, coffee looked like you know and so I get out I meet this girl this is a couple years later after I'm out but um she's doing her like master's or teaching credential or something and we would meet to study and we'd always meet at coffee houses and she's like hey do you want something I'm like oh no coffee's disgusting she's like well you like chocolate get a mocha I'm like what's that she's like it's a chocolate coffee and that was my gateway drug you got the foam down. That thing was, that thing was frothy. <laughs> well, so it's this like, uh, it's probably about this big. It's about the can size, but it's, it's large, you know, and it's got a handle on it and you got a hot setting and a cold setting. You pour milk into it and you hit the hot setting and it froths your milk while you're making, you know, gotcha. while you're brewing your coffee. But I just pour it in, you know, it just, gotcha. just naturally looks that way. So, I thought you yeah. were doing all. I thought you were doing all the labor. Um, well, if the surfboard thing doesn't work out in the end, there's <laughs> <laughs> there's always frother. Um, yeah. It's funny. I have a similar trajectory. I did not discover coffee until I was 26 years old, and right? it's been a mad love affair for the last 15 years, <laughs> 13 years. Um, and I just didn't have a taste for it. You know, yeah. when you're young, you like yummy totally. things. The Sweet. older I'm getting, yeah. The older I'm getting, the more disgusting my preferences are. <laughs> and like yummy things now, I can't handle. I'll have one bite of a churro. But when I was are a you kid, into like savory stuff? 
savory, savory, spicy. savory and gross, like blue cheese, oh, you know, yeah. like yeah. the grosser, the better as far as I'm really? concerned. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's black yeah. coffee. That's all I drink. Even that froth, I can appreciate what you were doing there, but yeah. I don't want to taste it. I don't want any part yeah, of it. Yeah. I want black coffee. You know, you know what I just discovered was oat milk. Mm-hmm. And I really like the nutty flavor of the oat milk. So for a season, we'll, we'll just have like 2% milk up in our fridge, you know, but most of the time it's, it's oat milk. And I like that nutty flavor with the coffee. It's, it's a good combo for sure. Yeah. I'll use that sometimes if I'm forced to drink milk, but oat milk's yeah. a rich man's game, dude. <laughs> Trader Joe's oat milk ain't rich man. Oh, it isn't? Okay. No. I'll go, well, I'll go it's buy it. affordable. Um, so I want to, aside from open with coffee, I want to open with uh, the impression that you left on me. I think we first met the first time we met. And I think we first met, it was like 2013 or 14, maybe. Do you remember, when did you start working at the boardroom show? Uh, Scott and I were just talk, talking about that the other day on his podcast. I thought it was 08. Oh, okay. He, he thinks it's 09. Um, I've got this photo here in my shaping room of me and Wayne Rich. Uh, it was the Sacred Craft then. Um, and he won the Renegator Shape Off that year. And that was the first year that I worked the show for Scott. But I think I was actually at the year before that, which was 08, with Dave Dom, who I was working with at the time. But I don't think I was like assisting Scott like I had been since 09. So I think 09 is when I started in the board, the Sacred Craft Show, which then became the, the board show. Gotcha. So you were way before my time. Um, I started showing up, I think, in 2013. But yeah, it might have been the first year where I, I encountered you. And so the impression that you left on me was you were the most sincerely kind, engaged, helpful. Uh, you seemed to be very interested in what I was doing and eager to help. And it wasn't just me. It was every single person that I saw you interact with who they might have been famous shapers. Some of them were employees or exhibitors at the show. Others were just fans who are coming up to like get a photo or whatever. So that left an impression on me of just like, geez, this dude, like, is he getting paid to help me out specifically? <laughs> like, why is he being so engaged? And then I realized you were doing it with everybody else. And I also realized how much energy that takes to actually be uh, that engaged with every single person that you meet. So I want to ask you, what is that about? Why are you so kind? <laughs> well, it was all an act. I'm, I'm not that way in real life, so... Excellent actor, dude. So now there's a third career option. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Um, Do you know what I'm talking about? I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I genuinely like people, not everyone, but like I genuinely enjoy humanity. You know, um, I find most of the people that I interact with very interesting. And I'm always learning i try to learn from every environment every scenario situation that i'm in um and i think that has a lot to do with the way i was uh, brought up as a kid i was a military kid i moved around probably every three four years was the max we would live in any one place you know and so it forced me to uh 
look for opportunities to get to know people in order to be known, you know, cause I was always the new kid, you know, but then I'd work my way up the ladder and then there would be another layer of new kids coming in and I'd be like, well, I know what they're dealing with and going through. And so, Hey, let's, let's connect, you know, and, uh, being in the military, neighborhoods especially when you live like on the base housing was very diverse you know there was a lot of african-american uh hispanic asian uh you name it like there was families from all these different cultures and the one thing we all had in common was one or both of our parents were in the military and so i grew up you know seeing color seeing the differences of, of cultures but learning how to appreciate those things and actually grow from it, you know, experience it and not be so uh, homogenous, you know, is that the word, is that the right word, homogenized? It's all yeah. kind of the same thing, you know? Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I just kind of learned pretty early on that, you know, if you want to be treated a certain way, then that's the way you got to treat people, kind of the golden rule, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and so I've really adopted that into my life and I just bring that to people, you know, and, uh, if they return it, great. But if not, at least I gave them my best, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and honestly, you know, that's what Scott brought me into the show for was to be his right hand guy and, you know, to represent him in the place of the shaping shape off director role, you know? So I, I always try to think of like, if Scott's not there, like how would Scott want this handled? and uh try to you know be as professional as possible in that in that context in that setting you're Does better that make at sense? it than, you're you're even better at it than scott is actually <laughs> he did a good job of surrounding yeah, i think that's why people. he hired me <laughs> totally uh yes it totally makes sense to answer your question but i the older i get the more cynical i become so I'm despite right now Okay, so dis despite much. knowing exactly philosophically what you say is absolutely true, and that's the human being that I want to be, yeah. I just find myself getting super annoyed with people at Target and being rude, you know what I mean? I don't even go to Target anymore. <laughs> so that might be my solution. No, I mean, it, it, how old are you? 39. Oh, Going on so 60. I'm, I'm 11 years older than you, and... Uh, I've definitely in probably the last uh, probably the last 10 years, I've definitely seen that tendency inside of me to where I'm like, and I'm kind of getting over people, you know? Um, yeah. I think what it, I think what it is, I don't think of myself as old, but I think the older we get and the wiser we've become, or, or maybe the more we've experienced, I guess, kind of the less, less we're willing to kind of put up with yeah you know so, or to tolerate and, and it and it may not be directly like a person but it might just be a mentality or uh, an attitude or, or something that you know externally we're seeing sometimes it is directly with the person i find myself in the water these days definitely being pretty short with people yeah because <laughs> um, i i don't like seeing stuff that is kooky but most of all dangerous, you know, like I had a run in with a guy a couple weeks ago. He kept taking off behind me. I didn't realize it. I thought, man, I like dropping in on this guy. Like, 
hate dropping in on people. I, I don't do it. And I hate being dropped in on. But he kept like somehow being behind me when I would kick out of the wave. And I'm going, this can't be happening. You know, I'm not dropping in on this guy intentionally. So I don't know. But I saw him do it to a few other people. I'm like, oh, he's just taken off behind people, you know, by choice, you know. And uh, so he did it to me, I don't know, maybe a fifth or sixth time. And, and a friend of mine was palling back out. He made a comment about it. And I was like, okay, cool. It's not me. Like, I'm not imagining this. This is, this is pretty lame. I paddled right up to the guy and just like, what's, what's up, dude? Like, what are you doing this for? I used some other words. And uh, he was like, well, what are you talking about? I'm like, dude, you keep winding up behind me at the end of a wave. How's this happening? Because I know I'm not dropping in on you. I was surfing my 11-foot bike. Oh, my gosh. And this is happening. I am the furthest out and the deepest by a long shot. I'm already up. And this guy's turning around you know, paddling for the wave. And then he's behind me. So I'm thinking, you know, what if I like lay back on the rail and come around, you know, he's going to be T-boning me. I'm like, dude, you're, you're being a total coup. What you're doing is not right. I'm like from, from the cliff, people are thinking I'm burning you, but really what it is is you're dropping in behind me. I go, that's just a dork kook move. Knock it off. He's like, why don't you just tell me like what waves I can take? I'm like, yeah, you can take whatever waves I'm not on. How about that? You know, like just knock it off, you know? Anyway, I was hot, you know, I was pretty, pretty, pretty livid about the whole situation. I stayed away from pipes for like a couple of weeks. I just didn't want to deal with the guy, you know? And then we had words the other day where we, you know, pushed it water under the bridge. It's all good. But I stood my ground with the guy. I'm like, look, just because you've been surfing out here for a long time doesn't mean you've been doing it right. No one's just told you that what you're doing is lame. So I'm telling you right now, like that stuff's lame. Like I got tightened up when I first started surfing and I learned pretty quick. You know, I yeah. took a couple licks, you know, you can't do that stuff today, but it tightened me up really quick. Like these are the do's and these are the don'ts. And if you don't do the don'ts, everything's going to be good. Did, um, how is he as a surfer? Is he competent? Okay. That's a no for people listening to the audio version. <laughs> um, so, and that's my point. You know what I'm saying? Like for well, so long, he's been doing that and none of his friends have been saying anything to him. And I'm like, I'm yeah. not your friend. So I'm going to tell you the way it is. And that stuff's wrong. So I think we need more of that actually in the water. I fully agree that we do, but who are the enforcers now? And are they vetted out? Are they qualified to do it? They could just be a hothead who's got a black belt in jujitsu who's only been well, surfing for two there years. There is definitely who thinks a he's lot the enforcer. of that. There's yeah. definitely a lot of that. It needs to be the old guys, the sages. It needs to be the guys that can back up what they're saying with their surfing. You know? Yeah, exactly. Like I like to look, like when I travel or go surf somewhere that I'm not usually at, I like to watch it for a minute. I like to assess out the whole scene. You know, I want to paddle into the water and set myself up for success. So I kind of feel like I need to know, like, how this wave, like, what's the nature of this wave, low tide, high tide, small direction, blah, blah, blah. But I also like to see, like, who are the people? Like, who are the guys? Who, who are the, the people holding down this break? And I like to usually sit right behind them. And I like to just watch the rhythm and the rotation that they're in. And then when it seems like the right time, I'll put myself right into it. And typically, if, if I can get that wave and show that, like, I know what I'm doing, I don't get messed with. You know what I mean? And I get messed Yeah, waves, of course. You yeah. Know? So I feel like those are probably the people 
they have earned the right to call out other people that are doing kooky, dorky things that can jeopardize kind of like the, the natural order and, and, and rhythm that kind of yeah. should be in place, you know? So I've got two thoughts that conversations I've been having in the last couple of weeks that relate exactly to what you're talking about. Because, and I asked, is he, uh, was he an adequate surfer? And he happened not to be, but I've had, uh, I've seen anyways, adequate surfers now doing very kooky things that are like wrong etiquette. So at some point they learned how to become a good surfer or a competent surfer, but they yep. missed all of the etiquette. And when I was coming yeah. up, you had to do both simultaneously, or in fact, the etiquette first, and yep. then you learn how to be a surfer. So if there was ever anybody who was ripping a wave, you could presume that they weren't going to burn you or back paddle you or unless they were just a dick. And then if they right. were a dick, then you're justified in telling them yeah. what's up or defending yourself. But yeah. the two things that I've seen happen is, um, or that I maybe can attribute it to is when we were coming up, there was only, uh, three magazines, you know, more mm -hmm. or less, maybe five, but three to five magazines. And they, the rites of passage that you learned all, were kind of embedded in those magazines through lessons and stories. And even they'd have like, you know, surfing 101 kind of like rules on the sidebar yeah. sort of thing that they'd make jokes about. But so it was that, and then it was surf shops. And so there was just, there was, if you wanted to learn how to surf, there was a couple of portals that you were forced to pass through from yep. the media and from buying wetsuits and surfboards through a local surf shop. And so everybody kind of had the same rites of passage. I feel like now there's a million and so yeah. everybody has a different surf experience. Yeah. So there's some people and, and everybody's rites of passages are different. And so there's people who have now been surfing for 10 years who have never heard some of, or learned some of the etiquette that you and I grew up with and everybody of our generations grew up with. Yeah. And it yesterday or a day or two ago, a buddy sent me a clip that was posted on Instagram by some third party. And it was a guy not getting barreled, but like getting a pocket ride. Oh yeah. And then claiming it, essentially claiming <laughs> it. And then talking about it in the comment section, like, oh, I thought I got barreled, but I didn't. But you know, he so he was acknowledging that he didn't actually get barreled. It wasn't as if he thought by viewing the clip he got barreled. In the moment he thought right. that he got barreled. Yeah. And uh, so my buddy and I were having a back and forth, and I was like, man. I fully remember getting pocket rides and thinking I got barreled, but my friends would roast me if I ever claimed it or if I ever even talked about it without them validating that it was actually a good thing. Right. And so it's interesting that now not only are guys not getting roasted about it, but they're publicizing <laughs> their pocket ride and then opening it up for discussion about yeah. other people's experiences having the same thing, which isn't good or bad. It's just very, very different than the way I grew up, you know, and I'm still traumatized by the way I grew up to where I won't post footage of myself, even if it's good, because, <laughs> because you're opening yourself up to some pretty broad criticism and totally. comments that you may not just want to deal with. Totally. Yeah, totally. Well, to your point, like this guy, you know, he pulled into a wave, he thought he was in the barrel, he came out celebrating it and then posted. And so in his mind, he had a scenario from start to finish that he thought he was, you know, dealing with, but it was his friends that said, no, actually you were in front of it. You weren't deep at all. 
your claim was kind of lame and you probably shouldn't take down, you probably should take down the picture or whatever. That's the stuff that's missing in the water on a large scale. And so what we have, or we have capable surfers, but not calibrated surfers, you know what I mean? Like, and, and that's why the synchronicity in the water is off. You know, we're not, we're not jiving together, you know? I mean, it's like today, what I see a lot of is like the first person to their feet assumes it's their wave. Right. That's not always the case. You know what I mean? Like, actually it should be the deepest. Well, what about the person that's waiting the longest? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like there's, there's all these like scenarios that play into like the one second that like the peaks rolling through and four people are in the right spot. Well, who's, who's the person that's going to get that wave? Like, what are those things that determine that number three out of that four person lineup is actually the person that should be getting that wave. And those rules of the road, like you're talking about, they aren't being dis, uh, dis what's the, uh, dispersed, you know, they're on a large scale. They're not being put out to the general surfing public. Like you go to Rincon and you see the sign. No one reads that, you know what I mean? Maybe no. some tourists do, but like no one's walking by and reading this and assuming like, Oh, I haven't heard this before. I should probably start, you know, surfing differently. Um, and, and I think that it's a generational gap thing. And I think that, you know, like not everyone has the experience of like a Joe and Joel Tudor, you know, where what went down, you know, almost cost Joe his entire livelihood because of something that went down. You know what I mean? Um, but at the same time, like there needs to be something that can happen when people are doing stupid stuff that helps them learn pretty quick. You know what I'm saying? It doesn't yeah. need to go to court and it doesn't need to go to the ground either. You know, there are some cases that it probably should go to the ground and to the parking lot, but it doesn't always have to be that way. You know, it, yeah. maybe it just needs to be a guy calling someone else out and saying, Hey dude, that was lame. Don't do that. This is why, you know, I think the problem, the problem with that is you were that guy and then it soured you to pipes for three weeks, well, you know, I mean, but I was still surfing, you know what I mean? I, I bounce around. I, I, yeah. I just didn't want it. I, it was more about checking myself. Yeah. You know, like I don't look for confrontations, but I don't back down from it either, you know? Yeah. So I just was like, you know what? I'm going to give myself some time away from this guy because I know that if he keeps coming at me, like I just keep getting, you know, elevated. Yeah. And so it was more about keeping myself in check actually. You know, yeah. and, uh, you know, for me, yeah. that was the wise thing to do and the right thing to do. You know, if that yeah. was, if that was like the place that I plant my flag and I say, this is my break and I always serve here, no matter what, I probably would have been back there the next day, but I don't really have too many of those places. I like to, I like to get around. Um, let's get in. You referenced your background a little bit. Uh, you were in the Navy. So you grew up as an army brat bouncing Air around Force. a bunch Air Force. Okay. And then, um, started a career in the Navy. How long were you in the Navy? Four years. Oh, okay. Uh, did you consider a long, like an actual lifelong career in the Navy or why'd you leave? Oh, I did definitely. Uh, <clears throat> the initial thing that drew me to the Navy was welding because I, I had taken two years of welding in high school and I was looking to continue that you know, education and experience after high school and college definitely wasn't something that I wanted to do or, you know, uh, 
it just wasn't wasn't for me. So uh, I joined the Navy on what was called the delayed entry program. So this was like 89 or 90. And then I was once a month at the recruiter station. Well, one of those months I was in the recruiter's office and this guy walks in the door and he's got his arm in a sling and I could tell like, you know, he had broken something or maybe he had surgery. He was in uniform and he had this huge gold thing hanging off his chest above all his ribbons. It looked very distinguished, you know, and so I asked the recruiter, what's this guy? And he kind of like flippantly just looked up and was like, oh, he's, he's a Navy SEAL. And I was like, well, what's that? You know, what's a Navy SEAL? And he's like, oh, they're like special forces guys. And I'm like, I didn't know the Navy had this. Like, I thought everyone in the Navy was a sailor. And um, so he told me a little bit about the Navy SEALs. And I met that guy. And I was a wrestler. I was a swimmer. I was a runner. And I went, oh, that sounds awesome. Let's do that instead. <laughs> so I switched gears and I, I had to switch my rating. I couldn't do a hall tech rating if I wanted to pursue SEALs. So I had to change my like job in the Navy. So I changed that. They sent me to a different boot camp, sent me to a different school in Virginia Beach. And then I came to SEALs training in Coronado in uh, December of 91. And whether I stayed in as a SEAL or stayed in as a, uh, a welder, I probably would have stayed in for 20 years because I would have been doing things that I was passionate about, you know. Uh, but because neither one of those things happened, I finished my time doing search and rescue after I left SEALs. And, um, and I got out of four years because, again, I, I just wasn't doing what I had initially signed up to do. Gotcha. And when you got out, what was your ambition? Um, Career-wise. Wasn't really sure. I mean, surfboards was was a thing that kind of happened a year before I got out of the Navy. So I met a guy in the water. We had a run-in, just our boards, and he offered to fix it. Went to Joe Roper's, long story short. He offered me a job. At a, at a factory that he was getting ready to start and I was getting ready to leave for the Persian Gulf. And it was just kind of an idea in my head of like, oh, this is kind of cool. It'd be something fun to experience and kind of, you know, get into for a little bit. But I didn't, I didn't see myself as like making it a lifelong pursuit. Um, Who was that guy? It just kind of, it, uh, Chris Ruddy. Oh, Okay. I was 20, 22 years old when I got out of the Navy. Um, I, I was just a shop run, you know, I wasn't like looking at making a living at this. I was sweeping floors. <laughs> I was cutting laminates. I was doing full schlep. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't anything that I saw as like, I'm going to do this the rest of my life. It, it definitely grew to that. Yeah. But uh, not initially. When did it transition into something that you could see yourself doing full time? And were you maintaining a day, like another job to make ends meet or? Um, not at the time I was just doing surfboards, but I mean, you know, this is 95 cost of living. Wasn't horrible. That's for sure. Gotcha. Um, I had, you know, I had bought a truck while I was in the Navy. So I still had that. Um, I lived with like there was four of us living in a 
two bedroom apartment in OB. Three of them were still in the military. Um, yeah, it, it wasn't anything that like caused me to, you know, stress on like, oh my gosh, I got to find another job. Like I was just partying and gotcha. making, you know, I was working at a surf shop, making surfboards, you know, and gotcha. surfing my brains out. So I, I was kind of having fun. It was, for me, it was my first taste of freedom because growing up in the military household and then being in the military and then getting out at 22, like the wheels came off the bus pretty quickly, you know? I, I went into party mode pretty, pretty quickly. Gotcha. Um, tell me about those formative experiences in that shop and who did you uh, work with or who did you see come through there and who were kind of foundational for the next chapter of your life? So at that particular shop, this was uh, ukulele surfboards. Uh, Ruben Garcia was by far the most influential person directly to me anyways. Uh, he at the time was still doing a uh, potato chip route, you know? So he was up at 3 a.m. every morning, loading up his truck and hitting his route. So he'd roll into the shop at like maybe 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, and he would start prepping boards for glassing. And um, I think I started like prepping laps for him, you know, where I, he would, you know, pull out the fiberglass, the fiberglass cloth, and then I would cut the, the laps for him, and he'd start prepping all the resin. Um, but I learned a lot from him just by watching and kind of osmosis. And then Chris, along the way, was teaching me how to hot coat. He was teaching me how to uh, route thin boxes, which were fairly new at that point. I think it was just the official system. It was the only thin box system at that point, which they sucked because your fins were always falling out. But, um, you know, leash cups. And then it was like the longboard center box route out. Uh, then it was laminating. Uh, Chris did a lot of like inlay work on his boards, Hawaiian, you know, print inlays. So he taught me how to do that stuff. And then I started sanding. And once I started sanding is I think where things started to really fall into place for me as far as an understanding of what goes into a full board build. Because when you're sanding, you're going over every part of the surface of the board, from nose to tail, rail to rail, top and bottom. You're learning what concaves are like. You're learning what different rail profiles like, spoon on the nose, S-decks. I mean, you name it, you're going over every aspect. And so kind of all the dimensional aspects that go into con the concept of a surfboard started to really kind of click for me. Plus, I was learning the nature of resin and fiberglass and just, you know, how all these materials kind of come together to, to complete one, one product, you know? And so things kind of started to expeditiously come into my, my wheelhouse as far as like ideas of what I wanted to do to make a surfboard. So Ruman actually helped me shape and glass and complete my very first surfboard. Okay. Um, so yeah, I would say directly there, it was Ruben. Chris was always in his room shaping you know just he would come out every once in a while just kind of check on the shop make sure we weren't you know burning it down but right. he was in there just handshaking you know? so what year was that that you shaped your first board that was 96 okay when did you introduce blackbird we bought our house in lucadia in 06 and i want to say it was november of 06 
that I kind of consciously said, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to do my own brand of surfboards. Was board building what helped allow you to buy that house? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what did you need to do in order to buy a house in Southern California and why wouldn't board building allow you to do it? Well, I, I've, I've always worked two jobs. I was always doing Blackbird and working for someone else, someone else's surfboard brand. And I was doing it because I needed the money and I didn't have enough demand yet within my own brand for it to stand on its own feet and supply enough for itself because it's a business. So you have to have capital to run the business, but you also have to have income to run your household. And there definitely was not enough coming from that. So I always worked two jobs, you know, um, but, you know, it is a trade in essence. It's, it's not like there's an academy that you can go to to learn the, the trade of surfboard building. Um, but it is definitely a trade in the sense that you can't apprentice. You can learn underneath someone or, or a group of people. And so that was the only way I knew to do it. You know, I, I'm definitely not a, uh, a savant. You know, I'm not someone that just has this incredible natural ability that just has to come out in the form of the surfboard. You know, I have creativity. I have a lot of concepts and I've become good at what I'm doing. I'm not great at it. It's an aspiration that I do have. And I like to surround myself with people that I think as great craftsmen. Um, but I'm always looking to the older and the more experienced people to learn from and to work with them and to get sharpened by them. And, uh, and so that's actually part, partly an answer to your question earlier about why I am the way at the trade show is I really do like to absorb as much as I can while I'm there and it helps me. And so if I can be that for someone else, then I want that to, to translate as well. Um, so like I, I worked for, uh, Dave Dom for three years. I worked at Christensen's for se several years. Uh, I shaped for super off and on, you know, as needed. Um, and I've, I've done some ghost shaping for some other brands as well. And, uh, and I've worked in a couple of different glass shops, you know, and so collectively all of that has become different tools in my toolbox and I pull from them, you know, as needed. So I've always just kind of done whatever it takes to, you know, keep the boat afloat. When did you open your own factory? So I took over this shop in, so I moved in in 2015 and then I took the shop over in my name in 2016. So I was kind of subletting under the previous guy's lease even though I was paying the rent, paying the bills, he, he never even came back up to the shop. It was still under his name, you know? So I was subletting it until that lease expired. And then I took over that lease and I think it was like April of 2016. So okay. I've had the shop in my name since then. What are the keys to success in that business? Um, I'll kind of back up a little bit. You were talking about having Blackbird as a label you don't have a ton of demand, so you can go work for these other factories and kind of do piecework to make ends meet. Well, each of those factories are making 
they're trying to make ends meet too. So they're making boards for probably a bunch of different labels and they have a bunch of, um, or various employees that might be coming and going at different times, depending on what the workforce is like. So it's kind of a complex equation, but we also see a lot of shops in Southern California that actually aren't built to code or regulation because it's so expensive to do. So I'm curious kind of from your perspective as somebody who's been running one now for five years, what are the keys to success of that business? How do you run a profitable glass shop? Well, that's a loaded question. Man. Or, or do you? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a really... <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a really good question. First of all, let me just start by saying that not all glass shops are surfboard factories, and not all surfboard factories are glass shops, right? So a glass shop, let's just take for instance one that's been around for eons, Moonlight Glassing. So Moonlight Glassing, uh, you know, they don't have their own surfboard brand. They provide the glassing service to other surfboard shapers, right? So whether it's the, you know, the guy, let's just go with uh, Brian Fredrickson, Sunset Surfboards, right? Uh, Brian would shape the board, bring it to them to have it glassed. So he would pay them for a service. And then he would bake that glass job price into the total cost of the surfboard that then he's charging to his customer, right? So he's going to charge on the blank. He's going to charge on his shaping fee. And he probably should upcharge a percentage on the glassing fee in order to make a profit. And out of that profit is where he's earning his living, right? And out of that, he's probably got to invest a certain amount of that back into his business and then the rest of it into his, his livelihood, his home. So... Whether you're that guy or you're bringing your boards to a glassing shop or you're the glass shop or you're a guy who does it all in-house, there's different profit margins for each one. Um, a lot of customers, I've, I've had to have this conversation with numerous of my customers. Is they think that if they order five surfboards, let's say, over a period of time, not, a, not even all at once, like let's say five boards in three years, they start looking for like a volume discount. Like, come on, man, I've bought an X amount of surfboards from you. Like I should be getting a percentage off by now. Like, dude, I don't get to buy bulk material in, and get a discount. If I get a 55 gallon barrel of resin, whether I buy one or 10, they're the same price. They're $1,155 right now. Forever, they were like 700 800 bucks and then when it hit nine everybody was like what the heck is happening you know we're we're, we're probably going to see 1300 i wouldn't doubt it by the by the end of, ne of this year i wouldn't i wouldn't be surprised but for sure by next year i could see drums of resin being 1300 bucks you know so there's also different sizes of shops you know yeah so the bigger the shop yeah the more volume but you also have way more cost and materials in overhead and you have to have more labor to keep up with the volume that it takes to, to keep that ship afloat. Um, I, I, I grab on to a lot of ways to build surfboards 
and I grab onto a lot of concepts, but I also listen to a lot of the stories and the experiences of the more experienced and the more successful and the older board builders. And so I'm going to reference a few guys here to answer this question. But again, this is just my perspective on, on what does it take to run a shop successfully and profitably. Um, Roger Hines has been working out of my shop maybe six months now. And uh, he has a list of Rogerisms that are just long and distinguished. And uh, one of them is keep it small, keep it all. Basically means you need to be doing most of the work yourself. And you know what? I've got no problem with that. I don't mind working hard. I love working with my hands and I love working on surfboards. I love taking a, a surfboard and, and concept and being able to bring it all the way to completion. It's very satisfying, very rewarding. Uh, but at the same time, you have to also be the most critical of yourself or else you become stagnant, you plateau in, in, in the results of your supports, you know, uh, you can become complacent even if you're not willing to challenge yourself to always get better. Um, and I think people at the end of the day are willing to spend money, but they want to know that what they're spending their money on is worth it. And I think that that right there is probably the single biggest factor in what people will and will not pay for surfboards is the people that won't pay what surfboards are worth don't understand what it takes to make that surfboard the way that it is. They, they have no idea. They might know about foam and fiberglass and resin. And <laughs> they might know about those things, but they have no idea how much time it takes to learn every step of that process and how much time it takes to then master it and become proficient at it and, and do it repeatedly with the consistent results that it takes to build a successful brand. And so when I look at a surfboard and I say, this is how much that board is worth to me, that doesn't always mean the consumer is going to look at that and, and agree with it, you know? And, and so I think that you have to start with reaching a place in your own conviction about your capabilities as a board builder and what your brand worth is first in order to elevate the price. And then you have to be able to deliver a product that, that, that calls for that price. It has to say of itself, I'm worth this, you know, and not everyone, no one starts out there. No one starts out at a skip fry level, right? He grew to that for decades. Um, I think that, I mean, at the end of the day, they are toys. They're not Ferraris, you know what I mean? But a Ferrari is still a toy to the guy who's driving a Ferrari, you know what I mean? People um, spend a lot of money on other toys, though. They buy $10,000 bicycles and golf clubs. and They don't bat an eye, you know? I think, you know, I forget who broke this down with me. Oh, it was Wayne Lynch. We were talking about, we were talking about the uh, return on investment principle, right? So let's say we take a, uh, a 10 foot triple stringer lighter, right? This is a wave catching machine. You are gonna catch a ton of waves on this board. Most likely it's gonna either be 
glossed and polished, or at the very least, it's going to be wet sanded. So it's going to be durable. It's going to be glass, heavy glass. It's going to have a lot of rigidity to it. So it's not going to lose its flex pattern over time. It's going to with, withstand a lot of like loads into your car or on top of the car, in and out of your garage and hitting the doors on the way in and out. It's going to, it's going to withstand a lot of washups, you know, on the cobbles at Santa. I mean, this board is going to last you 10, 15, 20 years, depending on how good you take care of it. So let's say you paid $1,500 for that, that 10 foot triple stringer glider. How many times are you taking that board out in the course of 10 to 15 years and surfing it? Okay. But the more important question is, what is that experience of surfing that board that many times in 10 to 15 years? What is the return in the experience that you're getting out of that? It's priceless. The joy, the stoke, the, the, the literal physical and chemical reaction that's going on in our body that we all call stoke, right? Feeling great, runner's high. You know, you go to the gym, you work out, you feel this, you know, rush in your body. We get that as surfers, but we don't think of it as a return on our investment, but that's really what it is. So in my opinion, surfboards actually are priced very substandard for how much we get out of them. Not, Not just to mention how much goes into them, how much comes out of it. And that was a really pivotal uh, conversation to have with somebody of that caliber, you know, Wayne Lynch, a, a surfer and a board builder that I think anyone could look at it, admire and appreciate. And it really changed the way that I thought about pricing my surfboards, you know? Um, so I think the problem starts actually with the board builders themselves because so many focus on the craft itself and really reserve very little of their time and attention towards running a business and virtually none of them got into it as savvy businessmen you know and so you would never get into surfboard building if you're a savvy businessman that's the point (laughs) exactly exactly and a lot of them don't even use accounting software you know like just very very basic things I'd say the vast majority didn't even have a business plan when they got into it. And like, kind of like your story where you start small and it is just kind of a hobby thing. And so then you slowly grow it, but the margins are so small along the way that people generally don't have the luxury to reserve, let's say 10 hours a week for business growth and development and or accounting. It's always just an afterthought that you're scrambling to complete or 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 just never get around to. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, before Instagram and Facebook, it was ads in a in a in a surfer magazine, which nobody even had the budget. Three no brands had the budget to do exactly. So yeah. you didn't have any way of marketing your brand other than stickers, right? You know, or T-shirts that you gave to customers. You know, no surf shops carried your stuff, and they weren't printing out posters and banners to put up on their their surf shop walls because those three brands you mentioned, they were the ones that they would promote. That was it. You know. So how big is your factory? How many people actually work in there? Do you have shaping bays that you rent out and how many different surfboard labels do you glass for? Uh, so I had two shaping bays, one sanding room slash finishing room 
I have a front office slash showroom, hold inventory room, and then the back room is my resin room. Uh, up until this year, it only had three down racks and then two sets of wall racks. And then um, I had expanded into another shop and was planning on kind of having a glassing division and then my own brand within it. Uh, that lasted for a few months and then some things went down where we just needed to kind of separate the two shops again. So I came back into just my space and was kind of scratching my head about like, okay, I've, I've grown a lot as far as my, my business volume, but my, now my space is smaller again because I'm in about a thousand or so square feet, just above a thousand square feet here. And um, my friend Micah Wood was renting the front shaping room um, at my shop. And what I could see in my head was that I needed a larger wet room. The wet room in a glassing factory or a surfboard building factory is the money maker. That's where the majority of the work that goes into that room is making the most money. And so you really need to give the most space in your shop to that room. Well, Micah and wet, I had, wet, wet just referring to you're working with wet work. resin. Laminating, hot coating, glossing, installing fins, pin lines, you name it, right? Got it. Resin pin lines. Uh, <clears throat> Micah and I have been friends for a, a long, long time. And I didn't have it in me to just kick him out. You know, just, hey, I need your room. Got to go somewhere else. But my friend Mike Lynch, who I taught to shape in 2012, had opened up a factory down in San Diego and was in need of some experienced workers. And so I thought, man, this, this could actually work out. So I introduced the two of these guys and they knew of each other, but I made a formal introduction, kicked the idea around and it, and it actually worked out really well for both of them. So now Mike has got his own shaping room down there at my friend Mike's factory and he's running production for the glassing. And, um, and so what I did is I blew out my shaping room, reset the wet room. I've now got five down racks, three wall racks, way more working space. And then I moved up into the front room and, um, and so, you know, 10 boards a week, start to finish is very manageable for me. Plus I've got Roger doing four to five boards a week. So between the two of us, this, this shop is humming along pretty good. Um, I was doing several labels outsourced, you know, they would bring their, their boards to me to be glassed. And I had a couple of people working with me on, on an as basis, but the busier I've got, again, learning from the wiser and the older and the more experienced, the more I, I see that I just need to focus in on my brand, you know? And uh, so right now, like I have 20 boards that I've shaped and in, in, in the middle of glassing for uh, icons of surf shop in San Clemente. So 10 are going to go to the San Clemente shop and 10 are going to go to their uh, Cornwall shop. So, you know, every once in a while I'll, I'll do some batch work like that. But uh, for the most part, everything else coming through here is is my my stuff, and then Roger's stuff, which he does himself. And so you have no employees. No employees. No, I'm, I'm pretty much doing it all myself. I have a couple of guys that'll come in one to two days a week on an as need basis, uh, but they're also working at other shops as well. 
So that's something that comes up periodically as well is growth isn't always good. And so the level that you're at now, like you're saying, you get to keep it all, but also, um, so if you want to, that's probably all you can manage, right? 10 boards a week doing it all yourself. Oh, so if you want if you want to get to 15 <laughs> boards, it really would require probably an employee, but the profit in those extra five boards isn't enough to pay for that employee. And so you have yourself in a situation where you have, thankfully, guys who can come in and help on an as-need basis. But the reality is, if somebody offered them a full-time job, they'd probably they take, take that. Yeah. So you're, that that it's a real difficult thing to get from where you're at to kind of the next level because there's no profitability until you maybe three x the business or five x right. the business. You know. Right. Yeah. And I mean, there's there's definitely some things you know like. Japan happened and then it just went dormant, you know, and I, I thought, wow, that was a flash in the pan. And then just recently Japan has come back online and I'm, I'm getting a lot of orders out of Japan. Uh, there's a, a new French distributor that I'm starting to work with and he's threatened to order like, you know, 16 boards for his first order. I mean, those are, those are good things to have, you know? And so those things, if they, stay in place and then grow independently. You know, that's where, like you're saying, my business could 3X, 4X, 5X, and then I could scale up. But I think what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to keep everything as vertical as possible, where I do it all in-house and I do as much of it as I can myself. Um, that way I do have as much profit as possible to work back into the business as well as into my household instead of just, you know, paying the employee, paying the tax, paying, you know, Christensen the other day, I, I ran into him after surfing. I was coming out, he was going in and he was talking about, he just heard that next year, uh, any businesses with five employees or more are going to now have to start offering, uh, uh, you know, basically a 401k plan to them. And I'm like, well, how many, because Chris, you know, Chris is a large factor. He might, under the Christensen Moonlight label, he might be the biggest glass factory, at the very least, on the West Coast that I know of. Um, he's got 18 employees. Crazy. 18 employees. And he's like, dude, I did the math on that the other day in my head. He's like, that's like eight to 10 grand a month just to that one line item. I mean, can it's you insane. imagine? That's just no. one line item. Yeah. That's, that's like... It's That's unsustainable. Stupid. Yeah, absolutely. And so many small businesses are going to suffer because of that, you know, um, or they're and, just going to go away, you know, well, they're going to suffer and go away or they're going to suffer and then raise the cost of their goods or services and inflation is going to go through the roof again, you know? Yeah. So it's interesting. It's a very interesting time and place to, and space to be in. You know, I want to, I want to touch on something really quick here everyone is pretty much paying the same cost for certain materials. Okay. Now there are minor price point breaks that you get on volume, but you have to be doing a considerable more amount of volume than the guy to your left and to your right. Okay. So guys like, let's say lost, you know, like the numbers that lost does affords him a certain price point on let's say blanks from us blanks. So they're going to tier, you know, their pricing based on how much 
but we're talking pennies, maybe dollars, but he's still, you know, 2000 a month, kind of a, of a level, you know what I mean? Where I'm at like 40, a month, you know? Right. So that price break, you got to spend a lot in order to get that, you know? Yeah. Um, we're not talking about 50% savings. No right. one's getting that kind of stuff. Um, I think in order for you to really make it in the surfboard industry, it's kind of like uh, poker players. You have to pay to sit at that table, right? You have to, you have to come in first and foremost with a, uh, you have to earn the right to, to get invited to that table, but you also have to ante up to, to play at that table. You know, and the more you spend, the, the more you, you stand to, to win, you know, and or lose, you know. Yeah. You have to pay to play this game. You, you really have to invest in yourself and you, you have to be convinced and believe in yourself for a long enough period of time for other people to do the same. And it's about perceived value. You know, if I came to you and I brought up some brand new surfboard name, you'd be like, Oh, that's probably just a brand new, brand new guy. You know, he probably just started shaping, just started building surfboards. You wouldn't be as ready to spend the same amount on that brand as you would maybe another brand that's been around for 20 or 30 years. Why is that perceived value? Totally. It's perceived value. And so you, you have to find ways to convince the potential customer and, and the, and the, the public, the consumers that your brand is worth it. You know, and you know what? Honestly, people can see through the BS. Yeah. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. And there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn jobs. Your time and capital are precious. And there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references. And now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com slash surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com.
you said the proof is in the pudding. Let's talk about the pudding. Here behind, <laughs> There's the pudding. <laughs> here behind me, we have the pudding. Um, so uh -oh. you were pitching this board to me as the Hawkeye. Is this actually the Hawkeye hybrid or is this the original Hawkeye? Uh, this is the Hawkeye hybrid. The Hawkeye I initially so. started out more the egg you know, yeah. range, the <laughs> egg slash mid-length, depending on if you're Joel Jitsu or Devin Howard. Right. Um, yeah. So tell me about um, the concept for the Hawkeye hybrid, and then we'll get into the actual design features and details. So the Hawkeye initially was, I think the first one I made was 6.4 or 6.6. Six. And then I started to elongate the template into the seven foot range. And uh, I really liked the longer rail. I liked the, the, it's called the parallel part of the outline. You know, it's the part of the outline that has the least amount of curve in it. And that's where all the speed comes from. If you think about a train track, right? It's, it's just two lines parallel to one another for a train to, you know, haul ass down. Um, so the longer the parallel outline, the faster a board should technically go. So in the egg fun board mid-length category, uh, that part of the outline is very beneficial. When you take that part out, it goes back into really curvy section, you know, where it's, it's almost disky all the way through. Having the wing break at the tail into a, a pin kind of brings back a little bit of that parallel outline in a sub six board. And that's what I think is really special about this hybrid version of the Hawkeye is it took the disky part out of it where there was too much curve in the outline and it brought back some of the parallel but we're talking about a sub six foot board. I think yours is 5'11". Yeah, 5'11 and a half, something. 5'11 and a half. Yeah. So, you know, from, from where the wide point is back to the wing is where the parallel part of that outline is. Um, it's not terribly wide. It's, I think yours is maybe 20 and a quarter, 28, somewhere in that range. Mm, it's covered in wax. <laughs> it's definitely not 21. I know that. Yeah. It's um, 20 and, and a fraction. I think it says one eighth. Okay. Might be one quarter. So, you know, not too wide helps it not be disky as well. The narrower it goes, the more probably parallel that kind of outline would, 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 uh, would become. But I guess what I'm saying is having a little bit of parallel outline in this board between your feet, is what allows this board to have a ton of drive and a lot of speed. And then behind the wing, right where the fins are, right where your back foot is, it's all about release and also hold. It's just where you're applying one or the other, you know. Off the bottom, you want it to be hold, and off the top, you want to get some release. So um, I wanted to get some of the same features out of the mid and the egg fun board size, down into the sub six size because not everyone wants a, a mid-length or a, an egg you know they still want to go ripper shred guy in the yeah 40s, it's pounds. <laughs> so i've never um of all the years doing the podcast talking to shapers i don't think we've ever talked about speed being 
attributed to the straight, uh, the parallel part of the yeah, outline it's in the rails. What's it's usually what's underneath the rockers. Yeah, so we usually talk about it in terms of flatter rocker, more speed, but the benefit of the increased rocker is once it's on its side, you get more turning radius. Obviously that still applies to this design, but I think that what's uh, important to note is that there's a concert of design factors happening here. And so just, um, you can't just go flatter and get more speed or go more rocker and get more turning if there's a bunch of other things happening. And by the way, three dimension, more than three dimensions, you know, yeah. all these different yeah. dimensions happening. So um, let's kind of break, let's break it down further. This is a twin fin. I, th I see the latest trend happening, which I think you were early to it with this design is the mid length has gotten popular in the last three years, let's say. The mid-length twins specifically has gotten, I think, the most popular. What I'm starting to see now, the new trend, is shorter twins that aren't fish. You know, uh, rippable twin fins that aren't fish. And I think you're nailing it with this design. Uh, you covered part of the outline. Where does the uh, front half of the board, what does the front half of the board look like in terms of outline? Um, I would call the front half of the board kind of a... Uh high performance fish outline so, so it's, wider. it's a wider nose definitely a wider nose it comes to a point it's not rounded there's a very very i mean incredibly subtle beak on that nose and the beak helps you carry volume on the deck of the board further up you know thank you um it's a deep it's a beak that actually has a downward yeah. slant so the beak apex is, but then kind of flattens. What's the flatness yeah, it for? It drops. Or, I just, I like thin noses and thin tails. Okay. Uh, even, even on my gliders, I, I really thin out my noses and my tails. I don't like a lot of volume at them. And that's something that I think aesthetically is more pleasing, but I think also is very functional. If you think about aircraft and boats and cars, anything moving through air water at the very tip of it at the tip of the spear should be the least amount of volume and the least amount of width and that way it breaks through it and creates a path for the rest of, of the object to then travel through with the least amount of friction and drag so i think that it starts and i think it should start and it should finish with as little volume as possible it's so uh logical and obviously any beak finishes thin but it's kind of a, a sharp drop off from the apex, like within, let's say an inch and a half. This I feel like is maybe three inches from the apex, like yep. a slow slope down to the thinness. Yep. But the so apex a lot is of too reduction. thick. Yeah. Right, right. Yep. Um, okay, so outline wide in the nose, parallel kind of through the midsection and then a significant kind of bump adjustment at the wing to thinner at the tail the thinner and pin and pin so wing i do tail. that uh wing twin pin or i'll do a winged uh like a baby swallow and i i really like the look of that one a lot but i think performance wise most people are actually enjoying the twin uh winged pin so the rails on this board are really interesting to me um 
they're actually thin. I feel like the apex is at the center and they're thin, but on the deck of the board, it's a slow, again, kind of like that beak, there's a slow slope up to where the color is on the board. So I'd say again, maybe two and a half, three inches in from the actual edge of the rail is as long as it takes to kind of hit the flatter part of the deck. Explain the rail design to me. Well, if, if I carried that flatter deck all the way out to the rail, to the apex of the rail, right? To where the deck rounds down to where the bottom rounds up, that's the apex. So whether that's at 50%, 60, 70, down rail, up rails, you know, symmetrical rail, the apex is where the curve from the bottom and the curve from the deck come together. If I carry that volume flat from the stringer out to the rails without sloping it drastically down, I'd have such a thick, fat, buoyant rail that when I leaned onto it, kind of like a, a ball when you push it underwater, it's going to want to push back. It's not going to want to pull underneath the water, right? So for me, I want to carry as much volume through the deck out to the rail, but then I want to really decrease rapidly that volume in my rail. And that's why that, that rail is shaped that way. Um, it, it keeps the rail curve from a volume perspective, a lower volume, which allows it then to roll into the water. And what I find, I'm 48 years old, right? I sit out on the peak. I'm usually riding a longboard. I'm usually riding a mid of some sort. I'm not riding 510, 19 and a quarter, two and a quarter shortboards anymore. That's just, those days are so far beyond me. But I still see guys my age and older holding on to that dream. Very few of them can pull it off. Very, I can count on one hand how many guys I know personally at the local breaks that I serve that can pull that off in their 40s, 50s, and 60s. And they're actually surfing consistently, catching waves, and most importantly, having fun. Most of the guys I see out there in their 30s, 40s, and 50s surfing shortboards at the local breaks on any given day are surfing, catching waves, but are very frustrated. Yeah. And it's because of one thing. You're bringing a knife to a gunfight. You've got the wrong board. I mean, yeah. you do you, hold on to your ego and keep your dream alive as long as you want to. But I've crossed that precipice, man. I, time is short for me. I want to catch as much, as many waves and have as much fun surfing as I possibly can. So I'm going to ride the right boards for me personally. So this board under six foot allows you to ride a shorter board, but kind of have the paddling benefits of a wide, thick fish. Okay. You know? and, and for me, two categories consistently come up when I'm asking someone like, what are, what are the things that are most important for you in buying a surfboard? They want to be able to paddle into waves and still perform. Yeah. That's pretty much all of us. So when you said, when you were explaining the rail, you said you want to keep volume in the deck, but then have the rail, you know, less volume in the rail. The volume in the deck is specifically for paddleability? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's going to keep the volume as a whole on the higher side through the entire board. But then in the rail specifically, where you 
don't want a lot of volume, it's not there. It doesn't need to be there. So that transition from the deck to the rail is, is the area that you're describing. Gotcha. Talk to me about the bottom of the board. There's a lot going on in a short amount of space. Um, flat is fast. Straight is fast. So like you were talking about, a lot of times rockers and bottom contours come into the conversation with speed. Think George Greeno. Fast forward, think Daniel Thompson. Toma. If you look at the boards that Daniel really chose to identify with, and if you haven't seen Daniel Thompson surf, he's an amazing surfer. Had he not blown out his knee when he did, he probably could have become a professional surfer, QS level at the very least. I think he might have been a QS surfer. I don't know. I, I worked with Daniel for a short time. We shared a shaping room at Christensen's factory. And this is kind of like right when that brand was really, really taking off. And Daniel's boards had a ton of parallel outline in them. I mean, they look like snowboards, you know, uh, chopped off noses, chopped off tails. And he had a pretty considerable amount of channels in his boards, but very low rockers. They, they hauled. They were incredibly fast, but I think that once you lean them onto rail and you start surfing them off the tail and off the rail, that's where the challenges of the straighter lines, the flatter rockers and the channels start to arise for most surfers. Most of us don't have the ability of a Daniel Thompson to compensate for some of those challenges that arise out of those design concepts. As a shaper, as a board builder, as a designer, every design concept that you implement you gain something from but you also lose something from right so you have to prioritize in your design concept what are the most important things and in what order when you're building when you're shaping a board you know whether it's based on what you're putting out for the public or what a customer is coming to you for and so each of us has our own prescriptions for those things you know so um what i tried to do was pack as much flat area underneath the wide point and the front foot as possible so that you can drive off of that in concert with the straighter part of your outline. That's your front foot. So think about like when you're initially dropping in on a wave and you're leaning on to maybe your front side rail, let's say. For me, I'm a goofy foot, I'm, I'm turning left, I'm on my left rail and I'm looking down the face of the wave. As I come off the bottom, sometimes all of a sudden you look up in that section ahead of you is already kind of crumbling. Naturally, as a surfer, you, you kind of start to do a double pump to kind of pump some extra speed down the line to get around that section. That's off the front foot. The wide point forward, the flatter part of the board, the thickest part of the board, all underneath your front foot or right around your front foot allows you to project a little further out onto the flats around that section than up the face. When you go up the face, you're then shifting all your weight to your back foot and now your outside rail, particularly kind of like right behind your, your shoulder at that point. And then you're transitioning from your front to your back. That's where twin fins typically start to break down is they get a little too much speed and right there, they don't, they don't hold on. They kind of slide out. 
or they dissipate speed through a turn because they don't have that rear trailer fan to push drive through a turn. Because if you think about a side fin and a, and a trailer fin on a thruster, the front side fin is parting the water. Like if you're drafting on the freeway behind a truck, your car has less drag coming across it. So it's moving faster with less work. It's moving more efficiently because there's zero drag or less drag. That's what the rear fin is doing off of the side fin in a turn. So it's actually driving through a turn. When you're on a twin fin, you don't have that rear fin to drive acceleration through a turn. Most twin fins, when we say a twin fin, we're thinking wide tails and a, and a considerable distance between the two side fins. On a Hawkeye, because you have that wing and the outline and the pintail, now the distance between the, the two side fins is, close, is closer. So you don't have as much disconnect when you're going from one rail to another rail. So the engagement stays between the two fins in transition tighter. So you can actually maintain speed through a turn. Does that make sense? It does completely. So uh, for me, transitioning from your front foot to your back foot should also involve the, the bottom contour. So coming off of the flatter part, underneath your front foot, I drop in double concaves. So then you're going to take a bunch of water that's being compressed under your foot in the flat part, and you're gonna divide that water into two channels in essence, because concaves are really just channels. They're just rounder channels than straight channels. I, uh, I did initially some of these Hawkeyes with channels, and I found that at point breaks, they went amazing especially on a bigger wave point break because you had open face area to bring a channel bottom board back around. But at most Southern California spots, you don't have a Rincon or a Malibu type length wave. And so you're having to make redirections more often on the face of a wave. So I adopted double concave and a single concave with a little bit of spiral V out of the tail to compensate for channel channels not being able to redirect in short space in a short amount of time. So you get a lot of speed and a lot of lift out of, out of concaves that channels don't give you because channels want to lock in and track. So that's why I, I really stuck with the double concave and the spiral V through the tail so that you can redirect as often as you want in a short amount of time and still maintain speed. When you're doing a, um, a board model like this, where you mm -hmm. want to replicate that same effect kind of from one board to the next, and you're not using a shaping machine, how do you measure the depths of those concaves and or, the, or, and or of the V? So I use a level that I put across uh, perpendicular to the, uh, to the stringer. So I go from side to side. And then I use my lights in my room and then I use a T-square to measure the distance between the bottom of the level and the lowest point in the concave. Okay. And, you know, I have a notebook with years of notes, you know, and at the top of the page, I'll just put them the year that I came up with the design, the name of the model, and I'll just break down all the different key aspects that I feel like need to be carried over into every version of this. So I know like my supermarine bottom and my caviar bottom are very similar, uh, but there are a few differences between them. 
And um, I've even gone back and like lined through some of that stuff because I'm like, you know what? I'm not using that element of design anymore. Scratch that out, add something new or just drop it all together. But definitely keep a lot of notes uh, on my notepad here in the room. And then if I am working on uh, like the CAD design systems, there's a little comment box and I'll implement a bunch of notes in there as, as much as possible. Um, I like to have, I like, I like to use the machine for what I would say is usually about anywhere between 60 to 80% of the shape, but not all of it. Because at the end of the day, if you're using a CNC machine, other people have access to files and it, it, it's not, it's not intentional. It just is the nature of the beast, right? Yeah. Your files are on a thumb drive, goes to a guy's computer. He uploads it into your folder. Another guy comes along. He's got his thumb drive wires crossed. Next thing you know, he's got your files. You've got his, it's weird how it happens. It just happens. Right. Some of it is intentional. Some of it is malicious and that stuff's wrong. But for me personally, I'll handshape a design I'll write it or get someone to write it. I'll make some changes. And then once I'm decided on, okay, this is it, I'll have it scanned. And I use a guy that actually hand maps out the board. So he takes a bunch of measurements, inputs it into a file, makes one half, saves it, butterflies it. Now I've got a whole file. And then at that point, I, I use the machine to give me a plug shape, basically. It's the general cut and foil of my design, but I'll leave all the concaves out. I'll leave the tail square and I'll leave a lot of thickness in the tail and the nose so that if anyone gets my file, they're not getting all of it. They're just going to get some of it. And if you can take it to the rest of the way, just like me, well, hats off to you. Right. But at least my designs aren't out there 100%. I still get to go in and shape by hand the rest of the way to the finish line. You mentioned the Hawkeye hybrid design is for kind of aging surfers or gaining weight surfers no. who still want to shred. <laughs> no, no, not necessarily. Uh, Sutton and Wyatt Tudor have 410 and a 54. My sons, which are 21 and 19, they have a five. Caleb has a 54. Micah has a 56. Micah's on his third one. No, second one. Uh, I have a lot of younger teens and 20 somethings writing these going, you know what? My shortboard is obsolete. Everything I want to do on my shortboard, I can do on this board and it's faster. And, uh, Paddles easier. That, it says a lot, you know, for what this board is capable of doing. Um, and then I've also had guys in their thirties like yourself. I think I actually sent you a text of this one guy, uh, Justin, who is a very good surfer, and he was he was a little bit frustrated backside, you know. And and twin fins typically are a little bit uh, different and a little bit challenging for the backside. They work really good on the front side, and I think that's why you see most asymmetrical boards set up: keel fin front side, quad fins backside. Quads just work a little more for your backside surfing than a twin fin does, but. I don't know how many sessions into uh, Justin's board it was, but he had a session where it all just kind of clicked and he, he figured out his backside surfing on this board. And he, 
he's like, this board's amazing front and back side. Now, yeah. You know? um, and, you know, I think another thing too, is like this type of board is not just meant for when it's small and mushy and weak, like this board goes in really good surf. I think you can handle both actually. I personally don't want this board to be the small wave board. I want this to be a daily driver that like some of these other guys makes their short board obsolete. Yeah. With all that volume too, under the chest and kind of on the deck, it holds in bigger surf. Like I rode it in a head high, you know, uh, not big surf, but head high, like overhead, juicier <laughs> waves. And it was fully, fully comfortable, like paddling in without a problem and up and riding, controlling all of the speed. So, yeah. Where, where do you it's normally personal. surf? Like, where's your top Huntington, three go to? Huntington and Newport. Huntington. So, we're talking like Golden West, the River Jetties, or south of the pier? All over. Yeah. The whole stretch. And then the whole you said where else? Newport. Oh, yeah. Those are great waves. Yeah. Especially on South Spells. Yeah. Hollow, punchy beach break well overhead yep yeah yeah um moving on from the hawkeye to your sons or well first of all how is it having your sons as test test pilots (laughs) it's awesome man yeah it's It's, amazing uh, it really is uh i i look at my brand as kind of like a a porter there's two sides to it you know there's there's the side of my shapes and my designs and the boards that I would ride. And then there's their stuff. And for a long time, that was just short boards. Cause when I, when I first taught them how to surf, you know, it was on the like, I don't know, seven foot INT board, you know, they both came into surfing on that. But then I made them, I think like five, four, five, sixes. And, uh, and then just kind of started the pendulum swing a little too long, a little too short, a little too thick, a little too wide, a little too narrow. And that, you know, all these different things were moving around and happening. And then all of a sudden we kind of all got into a good rhythm together where I started to really develop an understanding of just how thick the rail should be on a two inch or one and three quarter thick shortboard for a 10 year old. (laughs) But then I'm shaping a board for a guy like me, 6'2", 210 pounds, and the rails are very different. So I, I really had to learn how to scale, you know, uh, everything as a shaper and a board builder from, I think the smallest board I ever did for Caleb was 310. Wow. It was ridiculous and super hard to build because everything was made for five foot and up, you know, the rack spacing, even the head of the racks, it was the blanks were horrible. Uh, the five, five, nine P I believe was the smallest blank I could get from us blanks. And I think I got a smaller one from Marty at Arctic for a little while, the five, eight, but it was really thick. And then millennium put out a five, three G and I shaped so many boards out of that five, three G because the boys were eight and 10 and doing contests and needed you know, four foot six, four foot seven, four foot eight. And the five, three G had the right rockers because on the P had really good nose rocker, but the tail was super flat. And if I moved the template down too far, I lost all my nose rocker just to gain back 
tail rocker. So I had to learn how to shape back in tail rocker to keep, it was a nightmare for quite a yeah. while, but it taught me a lot. All those challenges, you know, caused me to grow and get better. And as they grew and as they got better, I was able to keep in step with their abilities. Sometimes I was a little bit ahead. Sometimes I felt like I was a little bit behind, you know, I'd shape on the board. They go out in a contest and they look like they forgot how to surf. And I'm going, Oh man, that, that's me. <laughs> I shaped them a dog, you know? Uh, but then there was other times where they excelled and they'd win and I'm going, yeah, that was me too. I shaped them a rat board. Right. Do they <laughs> it have was the arrow, not the Indian, you know? Do they have any interest in following in your footsteps of board building? think so um and honestly that's okay with me i personally would rather see them out serving doing the act you know uh rather than being in the the, the factory for as long as it takes to make a living at it it's it's not an easy living um i forget where i heard this but someone said if if you know if you want to know what it takes to make $4 million in the surf industry, then you need to start with five. You're just exactly. going yeah. to lose money. You know, you're not, it's, you're not in this to make money, you know, not in the same ways. The same. I used to work in the wine business and yeah, that idiom was, you want to know how to make a small fortune in the wine business? Start, start with a big with fortune. A big one. Yeah. yeah. I mean, who do you the see doing thing. wine? It's people that have made millions of dollars doing something else. This is like playtime for them passion totally. projects which is there's nothing wrong with but um micah has come in and he's done some scrub stuff for me you know where i'll have him scrub the deck of the board i'll have him scrub the bottom and i've taught him how to stay within the confines of concaves and if there's v in it you know not to go too far out to the rails and then i'll come in and kind of finish up the rails the nose and the tail design um but none of them have, have come in and, and done any kind of resin work with me or sanding or, you know, I just, you know, they were, they were in competitive surfing their entire young lives. You know, I think they got sponsored by reef when they were either eight and 10 or 10 and 12. And then it was a shop and then it was, you know, a watch company Nixon and then it was sunglasses spinal, you know, they just, they, they were busy doing other things, you yeah. know, with surfboards. And I mean, they would always come into my shaping room or the factory and, you know, they always had an interest in it, but they never were like, Oh my gosh, I want to follow my dad's footsteps. You know, Caleb's actually getting ready to start school at a the university technical Institute by Long Beach airport. He's going to be taking fabrication and welding. You know? Sweet. Uh, Micah, so he is following in your footsteps, kind of. To a degree, yeah. Yeah, just <laughs> not with surfboards, which is fine. You know, I mean, he's going to make way more money doing welding and fabrication yeah. than I am. Uh, Micah is most likely looking at taking all of his uh, human development and physical therapy stuff from college and, and looking at, uh, like, fire paramedic, EMT kind cool. of direction. Um, again, I... I just want them out in the water surfing. Of course. You know, just Micah rides everything. He rides, he rides a longboard so well. It's, it's, it's really ridiculous how good he is on a longboard. Um, he, he loves riding 
the mids. He's got a six four Hawkeye. Um, he's got two hybrid Hawkeyes, and he's got I don't know a dozen or so short boards of various lengths. For you know, he's in El Salvador right now. The swell looks really good, so I think he probably took like a six six and a six three. He's asymmetrical and his Hawkeye hybrid, you know. And, uh, and then Caleb is is kind of more consistently in the air, <laughs> but uh, there's some footage of him at off the wall and log cabins from his last trip to Hawaii on the Hawkeye Twin. It just it blows my mind, you know. Proper overhead and a half barrels, and he is completely disappeared in in the barrel and comes out and just does a huge wrapping, you know, layback. I mean, he can surf anything as well, but he's definitely a little bit more aggressive on his surfing. And, uh, and so he typically rides a little bit more of a high-performance board overall. Do you ride other people's surfboards? I do, absolutely. Um, I, think it's, I think it's foolish as a board builder and even just as a, as a surfer to only stick to one brand, I think, I think you can prefer a brand rightfully and prefer a style of a shape or whatever, and be loyal to them as a customer. I, I love those customers, but to have an expectation that they should only be riding my boards is, is pretty ignorant. And I think that you're missing out and keeping a, a pretty narrow view of what the possibilities are out there. And if someone's doing something better than me, then why shouldn't I figure out what it is and adapt it into my life as well? You know, um, I you like think, writing. Can you think of any, boards. any things oh, that you've absolutely. been interested in that people, other people are doing or other boards that you've ordered? And um, why were they interesting? Well, you know, working in the, the sacred craft slash border show has opened a door for me to step through that maybe wouldn't be open to kind of anyone else, you know, to a certain degree. So I've, I've really been able to get my hands on and get my head around a lot of historical designs and historical concepts that some of them were more proven than others. Take, for instance, the IPA, the IPA wing or sting, I should say. So that's a pretty radical design element that he, uh, you know, introduced into the surfboard design. It worked for him. It worked for buttons. It worked for a handful of people, but it didn't work for everyone. You know, I wanted to experience it. So I, I built a couple and I surfed it. And there were times where I loved it. And there were times where I felt like I was fighting, it. you know? So for me, it's like, okay, I've experienced that. And I've learned from it. And for me, that's, that's why I like to ride other people's surfboards. And I like to experience like their design concepts and go, man, what was it that intrigued them to the point where they implemented that? They, they introduced it, you know, Carl Extra, you know, he's the, the name that probably most consistently arises to the top when you talk about asymmetrical surfboard design, you know, um, I had a Matt Violas, uh, board, it was an asymmetrical. It had a really, really rad uh, channel underneath one side on the rail. 
and on the other side it was uh it was concave so it was like v with the channel on one side it was concave on another and it had this really cool transition in the tail i love that board it worked really good um was it a custom oh yeah it was a custom and then i've had other asymmetricals that i felt like the breakdown between what the differences were between one side and the other were so great that they didn't make sense. There wasn't yeah. harmony between them. And so I've adopted some of that into the way I approach asymmetrical surfboard building is I try to bring as much harmony between the distinctions as possible so that when you're transitioning from one to the other, you feel the least amount of disconnect as possible. So I think that works to your advantage, you know? Yeah. Um, I like writing uh, other people's longboards, especially because I, I really like to pay attention to the amount of spoon underneath the concave underneath it, how far back it goes. Do they run it out through the nose rocker or does it come to an abrupt stop? How deep is it? How far out to the, to the rail does it go? The type of rails, the rockers, the tail. And right now I'm really, really drawn to all of that. And so I like riding as, as many different types of longboards as possible to get broader deeper understanding of why it's there what it all does so for me that's that's what i like about what are you what are you interested in writing and shaping for yourself right now so the last board i made myself is an 11 foot glider fish i have an 11 foot single thing glider but i wanted to ride a glider that had more of a fish outline and I wanted to make that tail a lot narrower than some of the tail blocks that I've been seeing on other glider fishes. And um, bringing in that tail forced me to deal with some things on the bottom contours that uh, were fun to kind of work through as I was shaping it. And um, I made it as a quad and I set the fins as best as I could. And I, I get this question a lot from customers and it, it's mostly the answer is no to this, but I, I set these quad fin boxes up to where I could try to ride it as a keel twin or a split keel quad. Now on a shorter board, it, it just, it, the math doesn't really work. And what it comes down to is that when you're on a quad, the side fins are typically at 12 inches. And then if it's a future fin base, it's four and a half inches up. So now you're at 16 and a half inches to the front of your side fins. And that is pretty close to where your back foot's going to be. So now your rear boxes are going to be, let's say at like six and a quarter, six and a half, maybe up from the tail. And you know, placement as far as how far they are away from the stringer or close to the rail, that's all, you know, per shapers, uh, you know, however they subscribe to their quad fin placements. But a lot of guys want to be able to go from quad to a twin. And it doesn't really work that way in the shorter boards because where you would put your twin fin, just the one side fin box, is kind of right in the middle, halfway through the side fin and halfway through the rear of the quad. 
that's kind of where you would want your twin fin. So you, it doesn't work on the smaller boards, but on this board, I was able to pick up a couple of pairs of keel fins that were so far swept back that it kind of compensated for how far up they were. And so I've ridden it as a quad with just regular quad thruster template fins. And I've ridden it as a quad with a split keel fin setup. And I've ridden it with a really long swept twins. And then just last week I surfed Malibu twice on it. And because I'm just going right, I put the split keel on my heel side and I kept the swept keel on my toe side. And I rode it like that. And it dramatically reduced drag down the center line of the board, the laminar hmm. flow. So, you know, that was the last board I shaped for myself. And I'm still experimenting with it. I surfed with Roger at Sano uh, yesterday morning. And I rode it initially for the first session. And then I went in and hydrated, reapplied sunscreen, went back out on my single fin asymmetrical longboard. I really like experimenting you know, and, uh, finding what works and finding what I'm, I'm capable of making work and finding so, what the advantages are and what the disadvantages are, because I feel like the more I know about those things personally, then when someone comes to me and asks them, I yeah. have actually a valid answer. I'm not blowing smoke. <laughs> yeah. So, um, even going from one fin to two on a glider is the point or the idea just to get more maneuverability. Because I mean, well, a single fin, a glider goes straight and fast, and you'd be surprised what gliders can do. I mean, I the eleven foot glider, the single fin, I took all the edge out of the tail, and I actually put a little bit of roll. Where okay. most gliders are down rails to edge, and what that allows me to do from my tail is actually do a pivot turn. It's a little bit more traditional of a longboard, so now I'm actually relying more on the rail line than I am on the edge out of the tail to draw my lines. And it's been a really fun experience for me. It, and I ride a really small fin. This is something I learned from the PD point guys is most times look at a 10, six glider or 11 foot glider, just out of the sheer enormity of the, the board, you think, gosh, I need a big fin for this. I'm riding a, an eight foot or sorry, an eight inch DRD for pivot fin in this thing and that's all you need the, the length of the board the bottom contours the rail profile that does all the work the fin is just there to just give a general direction you're really not banking onto the fin for much on a glider um, and in relation by the way the fin in relation to the tail on a board like that the tail is pretty narrow you know mm -hmm. so there's actually not a lot of surface area right where the fin itself is right so a bigger fin would actually drown the tail. Exactly. You know, it, it would be too much for that tail. So it actually works better to have a smaller fin in that, that type of board. Um, if you've ever paddled out on like a mid, a mid or an a quad, and then in the same day paddled out your long board, it's a single fin, you'll actually feel the difference. Even though you're on, let's say a seven foot or an eight foot, egg slash mid length because it's a quad the laminar flow the water that's flowing from the nose to the tail it goes through that board completely uninterrupted there's no drag when you paddle out on a long board you've got a 10 and a half inch you know single fin with a let's say a, a 
don't know, six and a half to seven inch wide base. That's a lot of surface area for that water to part, come around and then reconnect with itself. You're going to feel the drag of a big traditional log center fin. So I, I liked to mess around with the glider experience going from a single fin, even though it's a smaller center fin, to a quad or a twin because they're both the exact same length and they're both the same thickness in the center, but the sensation of paddling a twin or a quad glider versus a single fin glider, hugely different. They catch waves very different. They turn off the bottom very different. And they redirect very, very differently from one another. So uh, I don't know, man, I'm just, I'm having fun with both. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, although I don't want to, hype gliders too much or popularize gliders yeah. <laughs> the mid-length has yeah. already been a plague in the lineup in terms of trying to oh, catch me competing for guys who actually can now paddle and catch waves so the well, glider see, would know, be the nightmare and, and again you know it comes down to bringing the right equipment to the right place you know you don't want to bring a glider to newport you don't want to no. bring a glider to huntington beach you'll leave you'll come with one board and you're going to leave with two pieces, you know, yeah. you're, you're going to snap that board. It's not right for there, you know, but I mean, I'm surfing Cardiff, I'm surfing suckouts, I'm surfing swamis or beacons or tabletops or, you know, whatever the North County has to offer. I mean, there's a lot of times where there's guys on fishes struggling. Yeah. You just, you just got to have the right board for the right wave, you know? So you got waves, though, you got waves out at Malibu last week. Oh Yeah. Yeah, I mean, was, I know, I know the glider is the, the way swell. to do it. The glider is the way to do it, but I'm just like, I'm done surfing Malibu. F- oh, full stop. Sure. You know? Yeah, no, I mean, Malibu is, is a podcast in and of itself. There's so much to talk about, but I mean, I don't think that it would be, I don't think I would be received <laughs> as welcome and as openly on a glider on any given day at Malibu, you know, like if it's, three to four occasional five, I, I, I wouldn't, I just wouldn't do it. You know, I'm not going to take my glider out there for the most part. Most guys on longboards are going to start to be challenged. You know, that's when I start to see the guys on fishes and shortboards, even really populating the lineup at Malibu. But I like to surf. I like to surf Malibu mostly for the longboard aspect of it. You know, I, I really, really like the nose right there. I love the trim. Um, Malibu is actually why I started messing around with asymmetrical longboards. You know, I wanted to turn higher and sooner up the face and set my line so I could start walking to the nose off of my backside. And uh, the asymmetrical tail, the shorter rail, and the, the kick on that side of my rocker allows me to do that. So I stay ahead of the section sooner rather than trying to catch up to the section coming off the bottom. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Well, Tim, this has been uh, super educational, actually. Great. Thank you, David. Yes, thank you. Just try
you, Tim. Um, educational, right? I mean, I feel like Tim kind of detailed certain design elements and, and how they translate to performance in the water in um, new ways that I have not heard before, despite, you know, 370 something episodes of doing this show. So I appreciate you, Tim. I appreciate your kindness. It is a good reminder for how I would like to be. And if you, the listeners, enjoyed Tim and you would like to actually uh, encounter that kindness in person, he will be at the boardroom show, which is happening next month, September 25th and 26th in Del Mar. He'll be running the Icons of Foam shaping booth. And of course, his label is Blackbird Surfboards, which is at blackbirdsurfboards.com. I've linked to it on surfsplendorpodcast.com, where you can find everything that we discussed, including footage of his kids ripping, images of the Hawkeye hybrid, and of course, you can set up your monthly support on our website as well. Navigate over to support the show. It'll take you less than a minute to do it. It's $5 a month, and it is the reason why this show exists for you. It's because other people are funding the work. So the more support we have, the more we can build out the business, offering video content, uh, more shows, more consistency, all that sort of thing. So thank you for your consideration there. Good luck on winning a Hawkeye Hybrid. We're going to have Tim custom shape that for the winner to their specs. The winner will only be responsible for shipping costs if they live um, outside of you know Southern California. And I believe that's it. Um, Scott Bass and I just released an episode of Spit yesterday. And then Chaz Smith and I are getting together tomorrow to catch up on The Grit. Feel free to call into the listener line. I don't have that number handy in front of me, but you can do it on our website. Go over to the contact page and you can find that number there. And uh, lots of ways to get a hold of us. All right. Thank you very much. Until next week, this is, of course, David Scales for Surf Splendor, reminding you to get back into the ocean, share some waves, and, of course, shred on. <laughs>